Okay, good. So that was where we left off last time, was with God's existence. And that was really just an introductory kind of class uh, to introduce the idea to you. Now, today we get started to get a little bit more specific, and it gets going to get more and more and more specific the further along we go. And as you know, the devil's in the details. Um, so what I'm going to try to do is hopefully make this clear. If it makes sense, then we're off to a good start. Okay. If it doesn't make sense, uh, save your questions, and we'll try to... Um, I can't promise you're going to like it all, but what I, what I hope is at least that it makes sense. And that's often the compelling nature of learning something that's true. You don't really like it, but darn it if it doesn't make complete sense. Okay, um, so we talked about God's existence, and one of the points that I made last week about God's existence is, and people are surprised to learn this, that you can know God exists and it isn't faith. It's just reason. You just, you, you can reason that you don't, might not know everything about God, but that there's some spirit out there that is all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful. Um, you can reason to this conclusion. And even people, you know, like Socrates, I don't know how much you know about ancient philosophy, but, you know, in ancient Greece they had Zeus and they had Mercury and um, uh, they had all the, the Perseus and all these Greek gods and Athena. Socrates, 400 years B.C., said baloney. There, if there's any deity, it's got to be one. And he didn't have any Bible. Uh, he didn't have any prophets. He didn't have any, any synagogue or teaching. He, purely by reason. So you can know this by reason. That's partly what I don't know how much you know about, about philosophy, but they put Socrates to death because he wouldn't believe in the gods of the state. It was considered to be a crime against him. Yeah, I mean, and this is still going on today. I mean, um, I don't want to go start getting going off stream and making political commentary or anything like that, but there's a certain strain of popular opinion that as long as you believe it, people treat you okay. Once you buck the trend, uh, you start to pay for it. Um, and, you know, that could, be the, that could very well be the future of anybody in the Catholic Church. The only honest reason to believe anything is because it's true. That's what we want to get to, okay? So you can know God exists, but darn it, you can't know it without making a lot of mistakes. Um, and that's why we say there's revelation. Here's something that sets us apart from many other religions in the world. What we actually believe is that this God told us who he is. And it's very important to understand revelation as, as being this. God wants you to know who he is. And he revealed himself to us. Now think about this practically speaking. You ever had a crush on a girl or a boy? Well, as the case may be. Um, if you're crushing, don't you make an effort somewhere to let them know who you are? Don't you try to capture their attention? Even if you're shy, don't you try to, you want them to know who you are? Maybe you try to make a funny joke in class. Maybe, I don't know how it is for a lady, maybe they dress up, you know, something like that. They try to, they try to capture... You try to, I know how it is with a guy, you try to make a funny joke or something like that. Um, I shouldn't talk too much because look how I turned out, right? Um, but, uh, but, but, but nonetheless, uh, you want them to know who you are. God, I've never understood why, but is madly in love with you. I have the slightest idea why, but he is. And he wants you to know who he is. So if you want to understand divine revelation, please think of it in relational terms. God really wants you to know who he is and decided to step in and reveal himself, okay? Um, uh, it's not forced on God's part. Um, it's not just part of his nature on God's part. Some people think, well, why did God reveal himself? So he could have followers, so he could have worshipers. Believe me, God was perfectly content to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and absolutely nothing else for all of eternity. He didn't need us in the slightest, he didn't need creation. It benefited him not at all. In fact, no sooner did he make creation, there was nothing but trouble. What happened to the angels? We'll get to this later. Half of them fell. Um, what happened to man and woman? Not 15 minutes go by that they don't break commandments. You know, he, he said, I should have stopped when I made monkeys. <laughs> at, at, least they, at least they were better behaved. So there's nothing in God. This, is, this was, why did God make us... I suppose the shortest answer is he thought we might like it. Um, but so it's something that he did, but he wants us to know him and to love him and to find happiness 
in serving him, which, by the way, is our fulfillment. It's very hard to understand that, but your deepest fulfillment is in actually doing God's will. And you can't do that without a little bit of help from on high. And so what we believe is that God revealed himself, okay? So let's talk about what we can know. As I said yesterday, uh, last week, by reason we can know God, and we can know him with certainty. Um, when I was growing up, I was growing up in Montana. And I had one great advantage growing up there, is I lived near an Indian reservation, the Crow Indian. And I love to tell stories about the Crow, because what you discover in learning about the history of Native Americans is you find a culture that has a natural reason of right and wrong before they ever heard anybody preach a word of gospel or Bible to them. In fact, the Crow had a strong tribal prohibition against adultery. Nobody ever came along and gave them a commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. They figured it out on their own. You know what the punishment was in the Crow tribe for adultery? They chopped off your nose. It wouldn't kill you, but it would mark you for life. And it would send a message to everybody else in the tribe, don't you dare do what that guy did or that woman did. Is that so? Yeah. Because they know the tribe won't survive. Butterfly but they, but 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 you can know this with certainty, rights and wrongs, and um, but you can't know without error, without lots of error. I'll give you another really interesting little insight, if you don't mind, about the crow. Um, white man came through. Montana territory and brought diseases they'd never had, including smallpox. Would you believe that the Indian peoples knew that something was wrong with the gods because there was an illness? It was as though they knew that there wasn't supposed to be this illness. And by instinct, almost, they knew that the way to reconcile with the gods was sacrifice. And they blindfolded 12 of their uh, uh, they, they took 12 of their bravest warriors and blindfolded 12 horses and they drove them all off a cliff. They considered this to be a sacrifice that would appease the anger of the gods. And to this day, there's a cliff outside town called Sacrifice Cliff. They've, nobody taught them a Bible or anything like that. And, but they knew almost instinctively. But huge error. Let me tell you, riding horses off cliffs doesn't stop, doesn't stop any, won't even stop a, a, the common head cold, right? Huge error. But, but their instincts were right. So God steps in, and he wants to reveal himself to us. Our reason has its limits. I can know thou shalt not commit adultery. I can't know thou, that you should love your neighbor. I'm sorry, love your enemy. I can't know that. It's totally counterintuitive. I can know there's a God, but I can't know that it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not without a lot of help. You'll never find, uh, you know, the, the native Aztecs or whatever, having figured out the Trinity. God had to reveal that. He had to tell us. He's like, look, let me break through the, the confusion. I'll just tell you. I'm a father, I'm a son, and a Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. We can't know it all with our reason. Here's the second thing. I hope this also makes sense. Our sin impedes our reason. Consider, the very first time I ever cheated on a test, I remember it. I felt like the teacher, teacher had cheated me by giving me questions that were tricky. That's how I justified it to myself. And I leaned over and I saw the answer on my friend's test and I felt justified in stealing his information. Um, and I tried to rationalize it to myself all day long because I felt so guilty. Let me tell you, the next time I cheated, I didn't feel so guilty. It was easier. It's kind of like you tell a lie. The first time you tell a lie, maybe it's difficult. The next lie is easier. That's the way it goes. And sometimes uh, you can use the example of, uh, you know, people who've committed very, very grave sins. I brought up Hermann Goering last week. He was at the Nuremberg trials, and they showed him footage from the concentration camps that he helped create. He was one of the architects of them, of bodies going over conveyor belts into mass graves, emaciated figures. And he turned over to his attorney and he said, and what's the matter with that? He, did, he wasn't born with a dead conscience. He developed it. Sin impedes your ability to tell what's right and wrong. You haven't met a single man who's ever cheated on his wife who doesn't rationalize it to himself and tell him that it's okay. 
They, they, sin impedes your ability to know the difference. And the more you sin, the more you start rationalizing it to yourself. That's another thing God has to step in and help us with. Because we get darker and darker and darker. Okay? So, um, so God revealed himself to us. Now, here's, one, here's a couple important points. The first important point is he revealed himself to us gradually. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see how this is the case. Many people will come to me with troubles about the Old Testament. They'll say, I don't understand. Uh, uh, how did Solomon have 900, 900 concubines? And he did. How did uh, uh, Moses, um, or better yet, Noah, get stone-faced drunk? Isn't that, isn't that wrong? Um, how about all these people killing each other in God's name? You, you, I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament, but... You know, the prophet Elijah found the priests of Baal and he found 500 priests of Baal and he said, slit their throats and empty their blood into the river. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought God said thou shalt not kill. Okay. It's important to understand this. God revealed himself gradually. Um, and I give you an example of this. Before God said thou shalt not kill, there was... A law in the ancient Near East, I, call it, I wrote it down here, it's called the Lex Talionis, or the Law of Retaliation. That is, that if someone took out one from your tribe, you'd take out ten from their tribe. So it's a way of deterring them. And then along came Moses with God's law, and he said, no, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, if I say to you, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, doesn't it sound kind of cruel? What about forgiveness? What about mercy? What about giving people a second chance? Well, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a huge improvement over the Lex Talionis. See how it was revelation? They weren't ready for somebody to come along and say, love your enemies. The example that I, that I give here, it's like the eye adjusting to light after it's been in the darkness. Uh, it's much easier if you gradually get the lights on than if you flash the light. You can't stand all the, all the light at once. Well, God gradually, gradually revealed himself. And the further along you get in the Old Testament, the further along Revelation continues. Okay? So, that's not to say that, and some people think that the Old Testament is completely irrelevant. That's not true. And we'll get into the, the importance of the Old Testament in just a moment. But let's first understand it as an ongoing and continuing revelation. Okay? So I do believe that's important uh, uh, to address. But, what, what the Old Testament was getting us ready for and what God was getting us ready for through all those prophets, uh, through all those psalms, through all those proverbs, we say he was getting us ready for the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, now this is one of the most important things I can say about Revelation. Jesus Christ is the ultimate and last word in God's revelation. He can't reveal himself more perfectly. Allow me to try to explain why. I'm jumping ahead by a couple of weeks into the class when we have on the nature of who Jesus is, but long and short of it, we say Jesus is God come down to earth. I got in a fender bender with a lady once. Um, she didn't stop. She kept on rolling, didn't wouldn't look. And we got out of the car and exchanged insurance information, and she noticed I was wearing a Roman collar. And it always leads to further questions, Always. And she says, I've always had a few questions about the Catholic Church. And I go, oh, you know, thinking to myself, here we go. Okay. And she said to me, and no joke, she said to me, who is this Jesus person? And I said, well, we believe that God come down to earth. And she said, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I mean, he's not just a teacher? I say, no. I mean, he's not just like, you know, like a prophet, you know, kind of like Muhammad? No. We believe, you know, like the same God who made this heavens and the earth, he actually became one of us. That's who we say he is. That's why we say Jesus is the last and ultimate word in divine revelation. God simply is incapable of revealing himself to man more perfectly than by becoming a man. Everything that he does reveals to us who God is. Everything that he says reveals to us who God is. Everything that he doesn't say reveals to us who God is. Not only that, but the he became a man... He reveals to us who we're supposed to be because he's the, the only perfect guy who ever lived. Okay, so what we say is all of Revelation in the Old Testament was preparing for the moment of Christ. Okay, that's probably the most important single thing I can say about God revealing himself. 
If you understand that Jesus Christ is the first, last, and middle word in divine revelation, you've gotten the main message this evening. Okay, but it gets a little bit more complicated, okay? Um, because Jesus chose a band of apostles. As you know, he didn't write a book. Um, there's only one record we ever have of Jesus writing anything in the whole Bible. Do you know what that is? Just out of curiosity? Do you remember the, the story where Jesus is presented with the woman who's caught in the act of adultery? Oh, yeah. And Jesus bends down and he writes in the sand. And people start walking away. And he gets up and he says, let the one of you who is without sin be the first one to cast a stone at her. And then they all walk away. It's the only time he ever wrote anything. And he wrote it in the sand. And just to close speculation as to what he wrote, people think what he probably wrote was he looked at people and he wrote their sins down in the sand. <laughs> like he read their minds and wrote it down in the sand. And they started walking away. But he never wrote anything. What did he do? And this gets to an important point that I'm going to make this evening. He founded a church. And he picked 12 people, the apostles. And then he ascended into heaven. And he basically said to those 12 apostles, tag team, now you take over. And he sent them the Holy Spirit to help them. But the apostles walked out and they said, hey, everybody, listen to what I have to say. And it all started with them. Would well, it have been 11? Uh, well, yeah, actually, 11. And then they picked a 12th in Matthias. Right. And then if you want to get really specific. Because his name Judas going to... Judas, uh, Judas didn't make cut. the cut. Yeah, uh, picked, uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to, we'll get to Sorry, that in, in future. It's okay. And Paul actually becomes a 13th. And then there's another James. And then there's a Barnabas. So that you know, we get up to as many as 15 before the close of the Acts of the Apostles. But that's getting far astray. But what, the point here is, and but just to define apostle, an apostle is a witness to the resurrection who was personally chosen by Jesus himself to go out and proclaim. So there will never be another apostle. But what we say is, everything these apostles told us about Jesus continued our understanding of who Jesus is. That's why this statement here in your notes exists. Revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. So if you could sit down and talk to St. John, who was, what we best we can understand, the last apostle to die. Everything he told you about Jesus would have been revelation. Okay? So it wasn't just Jesus. It was, it, was, it was ongoing. We say it ended with the death of the last apostle. And absolutely nothing will be added or can be added to divine revelation not after Jesus came. If you haven't heard before, we believe that Jesus Christ is going to come again at the end of all things. He's coming back. When he comes back, everything he says will be divine revelation. Okay, because once again, there he is. Uh, but there will be no revelation until then. Okay, now allow me to continue. This is an important point because people will say, but God speaks to me all the time. And that's quite rightly true. But he's not adding anything. Here's an analogy that I hope you find useful. Suppose you have a sweetheart who writes you a letter and you read that letter and you put that letter away in a drawer and you pull that letter out a, a week later and you read it again. And you pick up things that you missed. Is anything new in that letter? No. But you're getting more out of it than you got out of it before. That's how the church understands divine revelation. We can go over it and over it and over it, and we can get more and more and more out of it. But it was all there. Nothing new is being put in. So, so, so sometimes people will come along and they'll say, well, you know, they didn't define papal infallibility until 1872. And they didn't say that they didn't define you know, the, the doctrine of the Assumption of the Blessed Mother into Heaven until 1854, um, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't this new. And my answer is, no, it wasn't new. It might not have been questioned until then, but everything that we can know about God was contained in the person of Jesus and explained by the apostles. We really do hold to that. Okay? That's why we're going to say we're an apostolic church. It's already complete. It's not yet fully explained. It's not yet fully understood. Right? Make sense? Okay. That's, very, that's a very, very important point. Um, that contrasts with other religions, like Mormonism, for example. I don't want to go far astray on Mormonism, but they would say that revelation's ongoing, that they've got a, a guy in their church, and God can speak to him, and he can step up and add new stuff. Some people think that's who we believe the Pope is. That is not who we believe the Pope is. We'll get to that in a moment. 
Um, one tiny little caveat I need to add is you might have heard of apparitions of Mary and apparitions of Jesus. You ever heard of this before? Who's ever heard of Lourdes in France? Who's ever heard of Fatima in Portugal? Okay. And the Virgin Mary, they say, appeared to this child, and the child said, this is what she said. Okay. Those are called private revelations. And I could go on and on about that, but let me just be very, very brief. Uh, they can be real or they cannot be real. The church will never declare that they actually happened, ever. The only thing that we'll ever say is that they're worthy of believing there's nothing harmful in them. If you want to believe it and it helps you, great. That's as far as we'll ever go. You can get popes that personally believe this stuff. You can get cardinals who personally believe this stuff. But as in, by, by their authority, they'll never declare, in the name of Jesus Christ, you must believe in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that the Blessed Mother appeared at Lourdes. They'll never say that. Furthermore, anything that any of these revelations ever says will never add or change anything that Jesus Christ already said. They couldn't, or they'd be false. I've read false ones, ones that are manifestly false. Um, this might even make you laugh, but supposedly, I was reading this once, this Blessed Mother appeared to a nun in Guatemala in the 80s. And supposedly the nun said, the Blessed Mother said, that if you play guitar at Mass, that Jesus is not present. <laughs> well, you, I, might, I might agree with her preferences for what music to have during Mass, but it's manifestly false that the instrument that you use determines or, or negates the divine presence, okay? That would go against our teaching. That couldn't be true. So there are, we say there are these, they, they, they can happen, um, but they don't add anything. And anything that's ever given in a private revelation is, the reason why we call it private, it's literally, it's for the person who receives it. So if somebody, if Jesus appears to you this evening, that's for you. If Jesus appears to you and says, I have a mission to give you for the world, that is your mission. That's not the world's mission. That's why we call them private. Okay, I don't want to go too far astray, but people raise that question. Okay. I, I have a question. Yes. If, if, if and I apologize. Mm -hmm. um, if if he's coming back, mm -hmm. won't he reveal himself to somebody? Yes. Maybe a, a preferred person like Mary Magdalene, such as um, a modern Mary. Magdalene? Uh, okay. When they say when he's coming back, and I don't want to get too far astray, we'll save questions for the end. Uh, they say Sorry, it's going to come like a thief in the night. And the only thing I can say about revelation about Jesus coming again is when it's public and everybody sees it, I have no idea what that's going to be like, but somehow something like that's going to happen. Uh, then everything that he says will be revelation. Um, until then, if he appears to a Mary Magdalene or somebody like that, um, and, and there have been these people. I, I personally believe lots of these things are true. Uh, but the reason why we say it's private is it's just for that person who got it. They've got to answer for God to God for what that vision told them, but I don't have to answer for it. Neither do you. It's private for them. Okay. Uh, okay. So, God revealed Himself. We know Him by reason. We know Him by revelation, and the ultimate word in that is Christ. Right. Okay. Let's talk about how this revelation plays out. Okay. Now, I've got this thing for you here in your notes, and I talked to you about Scripture and tradition. Most important point I want to make on that is that it's not two separate sources of God's revelation. There's only one God, and there's only one source of revelation. Okay, it's Because when because I'll, I'll talk to you about scripture and tradition. And as Americans, uh, we come from a Protestant background of our Christian tradition. And in the Protestant background, uh, there's an understanding of the Bible and the Bible alone. I'll get to this later in your notes, that why that's not sufficient. But when the subject of tradition and scripture comes up, people will naturally think that the Catholics believe that there's the Bible, and then there's other stuff that Catholics throw in. I had a discussion once with my roommate in college who was a Presbyterian, and he says, well, you know, we believe in the Bible, and you believe in the Bible plus other stuff. And if you're not properly taught your faith, you'll think, oh yeah, I remember once the priest told me about scripture and tradition, and scripture is the Bible, and tradition is other stuff. I want to tell you right now, we don't believe in the Bible and other stuff. Okay, we believe in revelation, period. Now, it expresses itself, as I'm trying to say here, scripture and tradition. Allow me to give you an analogy. It's like body and soul. Okay? Um, you could say that scripture is the body, 
and tradition is the soul. Um, so Jesus, I'll try to explain how this unfolds. Jesus speaks to his apostles and he tells them uh, about forgiveness of sins. And the apostles go and they write down, like John writes down in his gospel, uh, and he breathed on them and they said, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Whoever sins you hold bound, they're held bound. John chapter 20, verse 23. And there it is. Now that's scripture, okay? But John knew all along that when Jesus told him that, that there would have to be someone who would actually say those sins out loud or they would never know them to forgive them. And that's tradition. That's the context in which the scripture is meant to be understood. That's what we say tradition is. So um, let's talk about scripture first, then we'll talk about tradition. That's just a broad overview. First of all, one source of revelation, two expressions. Scripture, content, right? We say that the books of scripture teach faithfully and firmly and with no error the truth God wanted us to know. So the books of scripture teach the truth that God wanted us to know for the sake of our salvation. There's nothing lacking. It's all in there. And I could go and I could talk to you about papal infallibility and I can talk to you about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and I can talk to you about the assumption of the Blessed Mother into heaven and I can talk to you about all all these things and you can think that they're Catholic beliefs. And I can go back into the scriptures and I can point to you where that comes from. And you can say, well, that's just the way you understand it. And I'll say, that's the way the church has understood it. And that's what we mean by scripture and tradition. How How do you understand what you hear? But first thing I want to make is that it's all in there. We don't add anything. There's no hotline, you know, like with a red phone in the basement of every Catholic church where the Vatican calls and tells the priest to add extra stuff um, to the Bible. It's all already there, okay? So it's all there. Secondly, um, um, yeah, just for the sake of the completion of your understanding, uh, God is the author of Scripture, and the human author is also the author of Scripture. Now, if you've heard ever, you ever heard anything about Muhammad and the Koran, however much you might know about it, if you ask a Muslim what happened, they'll say that angels dictated the words to Muhammad and he wrote them down. We do not believe that God dictated words to anybody. Rather, there was an invisible moving of the Holy Spirit that inspired a regular human being, somebody associated with the apostles or an apostle themselves, to put pen to paper and write down. What they wrote really is the work of that human author, and it's also the word of God. God is the true author, and the human being is the true author. I'll try to give you an analogy as to what that, sort of what that might be like. You could be inspired at a moment to lend a helping hand to somebody in need, to stand up for somebody who's being unfairly accused in a courtroom, to... Uh, help somebody out who's down on their luck out of the abundance that you have in your own wallet. Are you acting? Yes or no? Is God acting? Yes or no? He's acting through you. Does that make sense? Something like that happened, yet in a unique way, a way that will never be repeated when the scriptures were written. God worked through real human cooperation, as he always does. So God's the real author. Human beings are also the real authors. So we don't believe in uh, dictation. We don't believe in like mere assistance, you know, like where a human being basically wrote a human work. Like sometimes you'll find people, and this is very important, I can go on and on about this. People will come along and they'll say, uh, and I've heard this before, and they'll say, well, you know, the reason I don't believe the Bible is a bunch of men wrote it. And, you know, I don't believe what men write. Um, okay. Maybe the, you know, the, 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 the sex of the person who picked up the scroll and the, the quill pen was, was a man. But that's immaterial. Uh, God's the author. And, and, and that's what's true no matter who wrote it. Okay, um, So God is the author. But it, he didn't just merely assist us. God really is the author. But the human being is also the real author. It, he really does work through real... That's a very important point. Okay, Another point, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. If the Old Testament wasn't still valuable, we'd throw it out. It's still valuable. Um... The New Testament didn't do away with it. What we say is, the New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old is made manifest in the New. There's a million ways in which it's true, and it's so amazing when you discover it. Uh, Let's talk about Moses passing through the Red Sea as an example. Uh, 
Moses leads the people to the Red Sea. They're about to be destroyed by their enemies. God parts the waters. They pass through the waters to safety and freedom. We say that's a foreshadowing of what happens in baptism, where God uses water to set us free from that which would destroy us, which is sin, and sets us on our way to the real promised land, which is heaven. The old is made manifest in the new, and the new is hidden in the old. Here's another example. Uh, They're walking through the desert. They're trying to get to the promised land. God sends bread from heaven to feed them every single day. And we say that God sent bread down from heaven to feed us too. And that bread from heaven is the blessed sacrament um, and is there for us. And it helps us to get to the real promised land. The old is made manifest in the new and the new is hidden in the old. There's a million of those examples. And you really enrich the New Testament by understanding the old. I love discovering the Old Testament. And every time I go back, I discover something new and it's so amazing because it really takes, it's just like the difference between a flat picture that you're looking at at a postcard and actually going to the place where the postcard photograph was taken. That's what the Old Testament does to the New. But it's still one message. Make sense? Okay. So we, they, they, really do go, they really do go together. Okay. How do we know what's in the Bible? This is the question of canonicity. Uh, question for you. If we came along and discovered another letter of Paul, suppose they dug one up, would we add it to the Bible? Yes or no? The answer is no. And I'll try to explain to you why. Okay? Another Gospels. Okay. Um, the, 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 the books that are in the Bible, we say they were inspired by God and that they were understood and they were received as being inspired by God. Okay? So here's a, kind of a short way of how this unfolded. Let's pretend like we can go backwards in time and you can join the early Christian community in Corinth. And once upon a time, you, you know, they're, they're, the great St. Paul was there himself teaching you. But now he's left and he's gone off to Thessalonica. And one day, his, you get a letter from a man named Timothy. And you find out that Paul's written you a letter. Dear Corinthians, and he writes you this letter. And it says, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love is not rude, it does not put on airs. Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, love never fails. There are three things that last, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And you say, yeah, that's our faith, that's what we believe. That's what it would have been like in the ancient church to hear the original scriptures read for the very first time. You would have heard them and said, yeah, that's what we believe. And then you would have kept them and you would have copied them. And you would have made copies of them. And you would have said, hey, church in Philippi, you got to read this. Hey, uh, uh, church in, uh, uh, in Berea, uh, church in Jerusalem, you got to read this. That's how, that's what we say the covenant community came first. They heard the scriptures, they recognized the scriptures. There were a lot of other books that they, that they were given and they, they didn't have that same effect on them. There were many, many letters. There were letters of a man named Clement <coughs> who happened to be the fourth bishop of Rome man named Clement, um, I'm sorry, the third bishop of Rome, after fourth, Peter, Linus, a man named Anacleus, and the fourth one was named Clement, and he wrote these letters to the Corinthians, and you can read them today, St. Saint Clement's letter to the Corinthians, and they're not Bible, why not? Because there was something about them that when they were read, the Christian community didn't recognize them as being such. That's where the canon came. Same thing happened in the Old Testament. Exact same thing happened, okay? So we say that the, the communities first... And the believing community accepts and understands that these books are not just the same as any other books. It took a long, long, long time for these books to be compiled. In fact, it took about 400 years. The first time we ever have a listing of books in the New Testament, it's what we say the Council of Hippo, which was a city in North Africa, and it was the 4th century AD. So this raises a really important point. What came first, the Bible or the church? church? The church. What authority tells us what's in the Bible? God. What the point I want to try to get to here is that actually that authority is the church that God created. That's what we're saying. That's kind of what I want to establish. It's a very important part of being a Catholic that if you don't understand that the church has an authority that comes from God, there's no reason for you to not take the Bible and take it in any direction you wish and make it believe whatever you want. But the reason why we have a core belief, and this is an important point, is that we believe the church actually came first. The church ultimately told us, and that was, I mean, the, the believing community, 
headed by apostles. Apostles appointed by Jesus himself. That was the authority that told us what's in the Bible and what's not. Okay? Um, and they cut off the canon and said, no more. So if a letter came, well, this is just to conclude the thought, if a letter came along, a long lost letter of Paul, the reason why we'd say it's not part of the Bible is because that early apostolic community would have heard that letter and read that letter and decided that letter was of secondary importance, which is why it got lost. Otherwise, God in his providence wouldn't have allowed it to happen. We would have repeated it, etc. I don't want to get too far afield. Okay? But that's, 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 that's canonicity. Um, tradition. This gets back to what I was saying before. The apostles handed on what they believed. They handed on what they've heard. They handed on what Christ had taught them. They did it by their word. They did it by their preaching. They did it by what they established. So did Jesus say anything about bishops, priests, and deacons? He did not. But it sure is in the Acts of the Apostles. It's right there in black and white. Um, Did did Jesus say anything about bishops, priests, and deacons? He did not. But St. Peter certainly established someone in his place when he left the church in Corinth, in, in, in Antioch, and went to Rome. And he called him a bishop. And he said that there are what we call presbyters, same word for priests, and deacons to a system. Uh, that would be saying they didn't make it up. That was something that Jesus himself established, even though it might not be, well, actually it is in Scripture. It's in Acts of the Apostles. Um, um, but, but the apostles handed on by their preaching, by their word, by their example, what they received from Christ himself. Or the prompting of the Holy Spirit by their privileged and unique position as being personally handpicked by Christ to spread the word. Okay, That's tradition. Now let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It's not legends and customs and practices that can change. There's lots in the church that can change. Lots in the church that can change. Um, I can change the language I say mass in. I can say it in Latin. This might seem silly. I, 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 you know, I, I, I could say it in, I, I could say it in Bengali. I could say it in. Uh, you pick the language, right? Um, that's not the same as what we mean by tradition. Uh, what the pre, how the priest dresses, uh, that's not what we mean when we say by tradition. Anything that can change or has changed, by definition, it's not what we mean. Sometimes we'll talk about tradition with a capital T versus tradition with a small t to differentiate this. So if you talk to your grandparents, they'll say, oh, back in my day, you had to fast from midnight or you couldn't receive communion. And now the church only asks an hour. Back in my day, the mass was in Latin. Now it's in English. Those are traditions with a small t. That's not what we mean when we talk about... That's not what I'm talking about. And, and we can differentiate this as it goes along. But let's first establish that there is such a thing, that there is such a thing as a tradition that doesn't change. Okay? Um, the same message has been preserved, has been transmitted, and it can't change. Um, it expresses everything that the church believes and prays and lives. And as I already said, it's, it's older than Scripture. And as, as I already said, the tradition is like a, a soul. Scripture is like a body. Um, and as I already said, the first Christians didn't even have a New Testament. So I hope that's perfect. I hope that's clear. Uh, now, the, the linchpin that holds this together is this third point, and that's the magisterium. Who knows what the word magisterium means? Okay, magisterium means the teaching authority that God gave the church. Here's what we mean by that. It does not mean the church can add anything to what God said. It does not mean the church can change anything to what God said. The magisterium, that is to say the teaching authority that the church has, is at the service of what God said. It's at the service of scripture. It's at the service of magisterium. Let me give you an example of tradition. Let me give you an example. Um, Did Jesus say anything about arbitrary imprisonment? Does Jesus have anything to say about arbitrary imprisonment? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? We can say arbitrary imprisonment is a bad thing. We can teach it as a church. By what authority do we do that? By the authority that's the magisterium. It's not adding anything new. But God gave an authority to the church. He said, he who hears you, hears me. It's not just the church like reasoning about what Jesus might have said. It's a real authority to teach on matters of faith and morality. And a real important part about being a Catholic is to recognize that, that authority exists. Every time the church speaks, is not exercising that authority. I've gotten into lots of discussions with people in, in, in uh, RCIA groups in years gone by. Um, this authority is very, very limited. 
it's limited to morality, what's right and what's wrong. And it's limited to faith, what you're supposed to believe. It's not, lim- it's, it, does, it has nothing to do with what the church might say about economics or plastic in the Pacific uh, or any number of other things or whether or not you should build a wall on the southern border. It doesn't, the church, they can opine about these things, but that's not magisterium, okay? Um, the church very rarely exercises the magisterium, but when it does, what we say is that it doesn't make a mistake. You heard me say that uh, papal infallibility wasn't defined until the 1870s, and we believe that as Catholics. Uh, the Immaculate Conception wasn't defined until the 1850s, and we believe that as Catholics. Part of the reason it wasn't defined until so late is that nobody ever questions it until so late. And the church can say absolutely nothing. And sometimes we're at our best when we do say absolutely nothing. But when we do step out and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, the following you know, uh, belief about faith and morality is to be held by all, that's what we say is an exercise of the magisterium. The church has that authority. Without that authority, we never know, uh, we can never settle disputes. And sometimes we have to settle disputes. Here's an example. Uh, a friend of mine was at a Presbyterian Bible study. And they got into a heated dispute. And at one point, a man stood up and pointed back at the other man. And he said, I rebuke you. At which point, the other man stood up and pointed right back at him and said, no, I rebuke you. My friend watching this said, what's needed is an unrebuked rebuker. What's needed is an authority in the name of God who can say what's right and what's wrong. When we talk about magisterium, we say God did give that authority. It exists. Eastern Orthodox don't have that. It's why I'm not an Eastern Orthodox. The Russian Orthodox don't have that. It's why I'm not a Russian Orthodox. Um, um, um. Anglicans don't have that. It's why I'm not an Anglican. We believe that there's, a, there, there's an authority out there that, 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 can, that can speak in the name of Jesus Christ. We say that Jesus gave that authority to his church. That's the magisterium. It's at the service of scripture and tradition. It's at the service of revelation. It never supplants it. It never adds to it. Okay, this is very important. It only teaches what's received. Um, that's why I say here there's a connection between the teachings of the church and our spiritual lives. Um, uh, it's the task of the church. Uh, it's been entrusted to the church to try to profess this, to try to explain it. Um, uh, but it, but it does, but it does exist. And so that, that's what we mean by magisterium. There is, an, there is an underlying authority that can settle disputes, and it's not just an opinion. It really is an exercise of an authority that Jesus himself entrusted to the church. Okay, that's magisterium. Um, the church, by the way, one exercise of magisterium was telling us what the Bible is. Um, how do you know, and a little notes here, how do you know it's the word of God? Because it's inspirational? It's not nearly as inspirational as plenty of secular works. And there's plenty of sections of the Bible that are deadly boring. I challenge you to read the book of Numbers. You will not get through. You will not make it. It's too boring. And, and believe me, not all sections of the Bible are of equal importance. What I quoted to you from St. Paul from Corinthians is far more important than what he writes to Timothy when he says, bring back the, the parchments I left behind with Troas. And don't forget to bring my cloak. That's in the Bible. Okay? It's not that important, but it's in the Bible. Okay? So not all passages are of equal importance. Uh, but ultimately, it's, it's the church that will tell us which ones are... Um, so it's, we believe the Bible only because we believe the church. That's why the church is an interpreter of the Bible. The Bible doesn't do us any good unless there's an authority that tells us what it means. And this is why there's 30,000 different Protestant denominations. There's no reason why you can't leave First Baptist Church and start Second Baptist Church if you have a disagreement with a pastor. Uh, I, was at a pro- I used to go to Protestant Bible study when I was in college. And we'd sit around in a circle and discuss passages. And one guy, was, he led the, dis- the discussion. And if there was any, any dispute, he arbitrated the dispute. And I thought to myself, you know, he's like a self-appointed pope. And it made me realize there's a need for a pope. Except what we want is the one who appoints him to be the authority of God. 
That's what we say that we that's we say there is in the church. Okay, so it's an important point to make. Believe me, we can we can split hairs as to exactly how far down that goes. But if I can at least impart the principle that the authority exists, we've made our point. Okay, that's all I need. And I had a big discussion last year with a woman who she wanted to know how far that authority goes and where it ended and where it didn't end. And that can be, really be a very lengthy discussion. Uh, it really, really can. So I think at this point in your formation, it's important to understand that just that that authority exists. You can dispute where it ends, but please know that it exists. Okay, now, uh, the rest of your notes are really academic, okay? I think you'll find this helpful, but I don't need to go into this as much as I went into everything else. Um, I can talk to you about where the Bible came from, and I have that on one entire page here. Uh, you might find it interesting um, that the Old Testament and the New Testament evolved historically. Here's the Old Testament. Uh, we had the first five books by 450 BC. 250 years later, pretty much a solid writing uh, of, of the prophets. Not until 300 years after that did everybody come to kind of agree. And 100 AD, we're talking about 100 years after, uh, after the birth of Christ. Did everybody come to a consensus as to what books were even in the Old Testament? It took a while. Remember what I said about you need to hear the books? and you'd... There was a process. There were certain ones that were really clear, and there were certain ones they were kind of disputed. Um, there's a difference between the Catholic Old Testament and the, and the Protestant Old Testament, by the way. How much of the difference is in Jewish with the Torah? And, and this is, uh, in the Torah, there's no difference. That, that much is established. Those, those are the first books that were ever, everybody agreed on those. Um, but it just I'll, I'll split I'll split the hairs here just to tell you um, the last books taken were what we call the deuterocanonical books, and when they were trying to go over the deuterocanonical books, they weren't sure whether certain books were Bible books, and they said, well, we don't have any Hebrew originals of these books, so we're not going to include them. The Jewish authorities said that, not the Christian authorities. Okay, lo and behold, who's ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, Dead Sea Scrolls. They found these scrolls in 1946, and they opened them up, and you know what they found? Hebrew originals of books we'd believed in all along. Deuterocanonical. Deuter deuter I mean, canon means rule of, of books. Deutero means second. So the last books accepted were the Deuterocanonicals. I put the ones in, in uh, italics in your notes that were disputed for a while. They're in Catholic Old Testament, but they're not in a Protestant Old Testament. Tobit, Sirach, Esther... Uh, these were ones where originals were found in, in, in Qumran. Um, but I don't want to split hairs there. I just wanted to let you know, it's interesting as you study, and you can study this more on your own. The Bible didn't drop out of heaven. It took years and years and years and years and years of discernment on the part of authorities. Uh, first of all, the authority that was God's covenant community before Christ. And secondly, the authority of the church after Christ. And the, the New Testament had also evolved the first letters, the first books ever accepted as being the word of God were not the gospels. They were Paul's letters. They were the first ones written. The oldest part of the New Testament are the letters of Paul. They predate the gospels by as much as 40 years. The oldest writing in the New Testament is St. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And that was written about 20 years after Jesus. The first time, 20 solid years. The difference between now and what was 20 years ago? 1998? It's a long time. That's how long it was between the preaching of Jesus and the writing of the first word of the New Testament and a solid 40 years after that until we got the last gospel. Uh, by the way, that's uh, 67s, 70s, 80s, 90s. That's Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. That's their age. The last gospel ever written was John. The first one they say ever written was Mark. It's the oldest gospel. Uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Very interesting Acts of the Apostles is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. There's only one Gospel that has a sequel. You could have called it Luke Part 2. And if you read the Gospel of Luke straight to the end and pick up where the Acts of the Apostles begin, it says it's the same narrative and it even refers to the previous writing. In my first writing, I mentioned everything that Jesus said and did. That's how the Acts of the Apostles begins. He's referring to the writing he just got finished writing, which is the Gospel of Luke. And the point of Acts of the Apostles is to show early Christians that what Jesus began in his life, the church continued in its practice. That's why it exists. Okay, it's very, very important. Okay? 
Um, I've heard. I'm sorry, but they they. Uh, I took a class in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, three of them were written in Koine Greek, and I don't remember the version of Greek that Luke was written in. Uh, it's it's Attic Greek. Uh, but we'll, 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 if you don't mind, let me let me just finish this up. I try to keep I'll this on. Bug you afterwards. Yeah, we'll bug bug me afterwards. Um, uh, the, but the, there was a there was a New Testament Deuterocanon too. The very last ones ever accepted were Peter, John, James, Jude, Hebrews, and Revelation. Uh, there are four things that are always held in common. They expressed the faith, that is to say they had an orthodox content. There was a history of using them at Mass. They'd gather for Mass and they'd read these things. There was a history of that. Somehow they were always associated with an apostle, even if it was an apostle's student who wrote them, like the Gospel of Mark. So people say, who was, well, who was Mark? Who was Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark? So well, he was an apostle. No, he wasn't. He was the student of an apostle. The stu- he, was an, he was a student of St. Peter. Who was Luke? Oh, he was an apostle. No, he wasn't. He was a student of an apostle. The apostle was St. Paul. So you could say that the Gospels are the Gospel of Matthew, Peter, Paul, and John. It's just that Luke was a student of Paul and Mark was a student of Peter. But it was always associated with an apostle. And it came from a reputable location. Nobody ever came along and said... I got this writing. Where did it come from? I don't know, but listen to this. Right? It, it would never... Okay. Um, the last part here, I, I really address this question of uh, Bible alone. And you can look at that. You can look at that around. It would take me a long time to go through that. Um, but just cut to the chase. In the Protestant tradition, there's this tradition of Bible alone. Catholic tradition has never been a tradition of Bible alone. And I talked to you about how the Bible itself doesn't say Bible alone, how it's really impractical to say that there was Bible alone, um, how there's no history of, of Bible alone until the 14th century. So the church went 1,300 years believing in scripture and tradition. Um, but I don't want to get into that. We, we could be at that all night. But look, look that over um, in your notes. But the most important part, I think this is a very important point, is at the very end of your notes, I say it comes down to a question of authority. Who has the authority to say the Bible is the word of God? Who has the authority to say what the Bible means? Who has the authority to say that what books are in the Bible? Looking at the Bible without the authority of the church doesn't make sense. Okay? Um, without the church, there's no reason to look at the Bible. The Bible itself doesn't claim that authority. Without the church, you don't know what the Bible means. Uh, without the church, you don't know what's in the Bible. The Bible doesn't give itself a list of books. The Bible do- itself doesn't even claim to be inspired. So it's very, very important to understand how God revealed himself to us, scripture and tradition, and to understand that part of that was an authority to help us to understand what God meant, and he did not leave us bereft.